welcome to the Building Local Power podcast. I'm Jess Delfiaco, the communications manager here at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Today's episode features a conversation between Chris Mitchell and David Morris, and they get into um, a discussion about populist movements around the world and how those movements may or may not be connected to a trend away from centralized control and towards local control. So Chris is here to give us a little preview of that conversation. Yeah, the the first thing I'd actually say is that I think to some extent, and David uh, talks about this, I mean, this is really more about me trying to figure out what's going on in the world by asking David on a podcast <laughs> what's happening. But I think he would take issue with that all of these movements are populist. And I, and I kind of threw some different ones at him. Uh, some We talk a little bit about secession movements. And, and I think it's really about the world feels like it's in a different state. And I feel like a lot of us are trying to figure out how to organize that in our brains. And so David and I go on a meandering conversation through this that I I think touches on a lot of different areas that are valuable. And I I found it to be a very interesting conversation. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I uh, wasn't exactly sure what I was getting into when I started listening to it. Um, But there's certainly a lot of questions about what what's brewing, what what created our current political scene in the U.S. You know, what what were the motivations behind Brexit? And you guys touch on a lot of different pieces there and connect some of the dots, um, especially, and then kind of tie it back into our work here at ILSR. You know, what what are we talking about when we talk about local solutions and how that differs from a lot of the roots of some of these movements? And like a, like a good book, uh, by my definition, there's no answer at the end. Like, I don't want people <laughs> to, to be listening and thinking, wow, I can't wait to see how this all wraps up. And I would say... It kind of trails off. <laughs> this is this is more about, I think, trying to figure out what are the right questions to ask and what are things that we should be paying attention to and, and thinking about. Because, frankly, I would like to be able to say that we can neatly point to all of these different movements and things and say this is a sign that people fundamentally reject centralized control and they want more control over their daily lives and they want to take responsibility for it. And and this is the way that we can move forward and solve all the world's problems. And that's a piece of it, but there's a lot of pieces. Okay, so with that, let's get into you and David's uh, long and insightful discussion. Not too long. I mean, you know, it's... it's how long is it? <laughs> <laughs> We're less than an hour. It's okay, folks. Less than an hour. I thought it was more than a half hour, which is... I had a really fun time talking to David about this, and I hope other people find some value in it. Welcome to another episode of Building Local Power. And I want to start in a nice, calm way, because sometimes it feels like the world is burning down around us. And I think that it feels that way because the world is burning down around us. <laughs> so... This is Chris Mitchell, the uh, person who runs the broadband initiative at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. And I'm talking to one of my favorite people in the whole world, David Morris, who's been uh, not on the show for a whole two weeks, I guess four weeks, two episodes. So welcome back, David. Well, thank you very much. And, and people who are listening should should know that at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, we call Chris Mitchell the fireman. <laughs> right. <laughs> sometimes I'm setting the fires. Sometimes I'm putting them out. It all depends on the issue. Um, 
David, you just were on two weeks, or I keep saying two weeks ago, but um, David, you were just on um, a recent episode talking about micro mobility, and and I enjoyed that that conversation with John Farrell. I hope people listen to it uh, today. I want to pick your brain on something totally different, <laughs> and and that is this. There's a premise that I sent you, and and we're going to be talking about this, and it has to do with. Global trends, often labeled populism, uh, but this this general movement that I would say um, I, I have some concerns about, and I'm trying to figure out if there's also some hope in it. And so let me let me say this: whether it's Donald Trump in the United States, uh, Brexit, or other similar European trends in, in conflict, uh, or still other movements across the globe. A lot of people are calling this, you know, um, um, the uh, reaction against the elites, um, uh, maybe a new generation of populism. And I'm curious, is that accurate or should we be thinking about this as more as a reaction against too much centralized control in a movement that for both better and for worse is is really support of local control? Right. Well, I I think that that there are two responses to that. One is that it, it is a a reaction to elites in some ways, but it is not uh, a, uh, a revolt against central control. I mean, in fact, in the case of of, of Donald Trump, uh, they, you know, he is amassing centralized control in a way unprecedented in American history, uh, and and people, you know, seem to like that, or at least fifty percent of the country does at this point. So there is not a populist movement against the federal government exercising enormous power. Uh, there may be a, a movement about how it exercises that power, uh, but for example, you know, Donald Trump deciding to preempt the authority of states to allow drilling offshore in those states would certainly not be popular by the people, you know, in those states. Uh, and similarly, in uh, in Europe, you don't find in internal, uh, you know, the, the populist movements internally that is in Poland or or Hungary you know or the like or, or even in 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 Great Britain uh, internally they 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 uh, they don't seem to be a reaction to elites except probably in Great Britain they might be uh, because in Great Britain it's essentially England versus London uh, and then there's Scotland and Ireland and so forth and and, and so you know people when they think about brexit, uh, the uh, you know it was it was not Great Britain that wanted to get out from from the European Union. Uh, it was England that wanted to get out from the from the European Union. Uh, Scotland did, certainly did not want to. Uh, Northern Ireland was you know not really interested in that. Uh, so it, we we do need to think about this in terms of elites, in terms of centralized authority. So let me let me just make sure I got this in a sense. So there's there's a couple of things that you responded with that are important. And the first one I think is that this isn't really a reaction against elites. And and I and I wanna we'll set that aside and not talk about it much, I think, because I, I agree with you and that's actually worth noting that a fair number of Donald Trump's supporters are elites. And I don't know enough about some of the other movements that we were talking about. So let's set aside elites. Now the issue is centralized control I do feel like there's a number of people who are embracing the language that Donald Trump used in terms of the swamp and in terms of, of, of things that I associate with centralized control and that these are people who often aren't paying super close attention that he is proposing much more centralized control. And I don't know if that's different from Huey Long and others, um, but, but is, there, is there a tendency um, in populism to be against centralized control with these nuances? 
Uh, yes, it depends on what you mean by centralized, but yes, absolutely. Although the populist movement of, of uh, the late 19th century was against, uh, in terms of agriculture, it was against Minneapolis banks, uh, essentially, and Minneapolis grain companies. Uh, so, you know, that it was, it was a long distance uh, control by, by forces that you really uh, were weak against. Uh, and the solution to that uh, by the populace was either state ownership, but not federal ownership, uh, state ownership within their states, which were relatively rural and, and sparsely populated at the time, uh, but also cooperative ownership. Uh, that is, you know, with production uh, facilities would either be public uh, or they would be cooperatively owned. And that was the strategy for much, if not if not uh, all of the populist movement, at least that, that movement that was rural. Those solutions that you're noting, those have local accountability elements. So that's, that's sort of what I was hoping to get at. And then the other thing I wanted to clarify is that, you know, you mentioned um, England versus London and the dynamic there, as I understand it, is one that uh, once, not unlike in the United States, we see people who are not in the major metropolitan areas who are kind of revolting. And in this case, it seems like they... Um, are revolting against um, a couple of specific issues represented by um, they feel that, that European bureaucrats have too much control over their things that they view as important to them. Well, in the case of England versus London, it's not the European bureaucrats, it's London itself. And it's uh, it's the financial center or one of the two financial centers uh, in Europe. Uh, uh, England is also you know one of the major tax shelters uh, in the world, uh, and the real estate prices have gone berserk uh, because it's also the place that that Russian oligarchs and and Chinese billionaires, you know, park their money. Um, so, and and none of that has anything to do with the European Union. In fact, uh, as they withdraw from the European Union, a key issue uh, is going to be what Europe does vis-a-vis -vis London as a financial center. Uh, it could cut it off at its knees, couldn't eliminate it, but it could certainly make it a second-rate uh, financial center. Uh, so, you know, those, uh, th those, it was, it was a different di uh, dynamic, you know, than a revolt against Europe. Uh, and I, I think it, it'd be useful for people to to kind of get a, a sense of this thing called Europe uh, and a little bit of its history. Uh, I'm not going back, you know, two thousand years, um, but you know, the the um, you know, Europe started with with uh, six countries uh, in, uh, in 1957. Uh, and then it began to evolve. And as it evolved, it began to create rules uh, and it began to create uh, a, uh, a bureaucracy. Uh, and the accession, that's the term they use, into the European Union or the European community uh, was, was done in most places by a referendum didn't have to be. It wasn't required. Uh, but most countries did have a referendum uh, and some of them rejected it. Uh, and so it was a democratic process for accession. And in terms of uh, a new country coming in or any major decision being made, very significant decision being made by Europe, one country had veto power. And in 1992, the European Union adopted a treaty which essentially expanded the, the, uh, the ability for there to be a majority voting. That is, it did not have to be unanimous voting. Both France and uh, Denmark rejected that, and that treaty was not ratified because at that time, 
uh, it uh, it did require uh, unanimity for it to go forward. And so that was, uh, you know, I want to come back to that in a minute, but that was a, a key sort of turning point, if you will, uh, in the relationship between Europe and the individual countries. And for people who, who want to know a little bit more about American history, uh, we should know that America, at least the American Constitution, was founded uh, illegally. I mean, it was founded as a coup d'etat. Uh, because the Articles of Confederation, which was our original constitution, uh, said it could not be changed uh, without a unanimous vote. Uh, and the constitutional, the people who wrote the constitution just simply said, well, you know, we don't need a, a unanimous vote. Uh, and in fact, it was not a unanimous vote uh, for all the states, uh, but it was ratified and it went into effect. The, uh, the arguments about that, and by the way, this was an argument about it by men, by whites, uh, and by those who held property. Uh, but it was a vigorous argument uh, as to whether one wanted to give up control. Uh, and at that point, they were talking about a very modest amount of control, but whether you wanted to give up any control mm -hmm. uh, to a federal government. So, you know, 1789 or 1787 in the United States and 1992 in Europe were somewhat similar, if you will, about a fundamental change in governance uh, to undermine an individual country uh, or in, in our case, an individual state uh, from, you know, actually having uh, uh, autonomy. Well, I think that that gets us back nicely to this sets a couple of interesting points, one of which is I think none of this is new. <laughs> um, and, and it certainly wasn't the, the first time we saw a group of people just deciding that the rules were wrong and they would just arbitrarily change them um, for better and for worse, which I think will be a, a theme here <laughs> as we discuss this. Um, but I think th there's, there's this question that I want to I want to get back to, and I think it's where I where I'd cut you off um, a, a few minutes ago when I was clarifying a couple of things. And that is. Are are we seeing a movement for for more local accountability, less kind of control from those people? I, I well, I, I think that we that we are. You know, in the United States, we think of it somewhat differently uh, than we would in Europe or than we would within certain you know regions uh, in the world. Um, so, I mean, in the United States, when we say local, uh, we mean local. Uh, I think we mean cities uh, and maybe regions. Uh, and maybe in maybe states, although they would tend to be small states, if you know, like Rhode Island, when we we might use the word local. Uh, whereas in in Europe, by local, you might mean a country uh, in uh, in Europe. Uh, but Europe, at the time that it actually became the European Union, uh, in the 1990s, and by the way, that 1992 treaty was did not go into effect, but they made a whole bunch of amendments and, uh, and Denmark then, uh, then ratified it, but it did not do what, what they were worried about the original one, uh, doing. Um, but you know, when it, when it went into effect, the, it did create institutional structures, uh, in Europe that created more of a bureaucracy. Uh, so, but at the same time, it created this new institutional form, and I'm trying to get the name correct, but it's, it's essentially a European uh, commission of regions, essentially. It was a, an institution where subnational units in Europe 
uh, could have direct participation uh, in decision-making structures in Europe. And, and so, you know, at, at the same time, uh, as they were thinking about essentially allowing for majority vote and overruling state uh, national autonomy, they were recognizing that there were these movements internal uh, to those countries uh, for, uh, for autonomy. Uh, but just one other point is that you know, if you think about things like uh, the Kurds, for example, they don't have a country. You know, Palestine doesn't have a country. Uh, the Uyghurs in, in in China, you know, don't have a country. Uh, the the uh, the the Muslims thought they had a country in India, but it's rapidly uh, their rights are being taken away from them dramatically uh, just in the last in in the last few months by the Hindu uh, majority. Um, so there's you know, and none of these have to do with populist movements per se, they do have to do with religious-based or ethnic-based uh, movements. So, you know, when you go around the world, you you see, I think, this general theme that there are smaller units that essentially are trying to gain more autonomy. When you then drill down into that, you find that the motivations of that are very different depending on uh, what country you're looking at or region you're looking at. Would you say that that this is something that has accelerated? Um, and one of the things that that I come back to is there's this there's a sense which I I really hope is well placed, but I have this nagging feeling maybe misplaced that it is safer now to be a small country because we are not going to see sudden changes in the map where a country decides to take over another country and that's going to be accepted. And and so there's maybe a little bit more, um, you know, a group that may previously have been content to um, not be happy, but at least have the security of being part of a larger country may now have be more emboldened to seek their own, their own official country. Yes, I think that that is, that is true. You know, since in 1995, there were 60 countries that is recognized nations, if you will, in the world. Today, there are 195. Uh, and, you know, the first wave of those was the decolonization movement. Uh, and then the next wave uh, was the breakup of the Soviet Union and, and then the, the division of, uh, of, uh, of Yugoslavia. Uh, and, and so, you know, and each one of those were peoples uh, trying to gain more autonomy. Um, but more recently, uh, you've had people, you've had breakups internal to countries or trying to be. You've had South Sudan, you know, for example, uh, that split away. You've had the Czech Republic now and Slovakia, you know, two independent countries uh, from an individual country. Um, so you're, you're, you're having a, a, a different dynamic that's, uh, you know, that's occurring right now. And the answer to your question in terms of small is, uh, yes, uh, absolutely. I mean, the Institute for Local Self-Reliance was founded on the basis uh, that bigness uh, is, a, is, a, uh, is a burden on society, and in some cases is an evil. It contributes to a great deal of negative effects, and new technologies, just in the last generation, are decentralizing in their impact, that is the production technologies. Uh, and so, you know, now more than any time in history, we can have a high-tech modern society, uh, and also it, it can be a relatively uh, small, you know, number of people. Uh, and so you're having that yearning for autonomy. 
uh, and it's you know the Basque province in uh, or they call themselves the Basque nation actually and the and the Spanish constitution calls them nations uh, Catalan uh, is considered its own nation um, but when Catalan decided that it actually wanted to be its own nation uh, the uh, the Spanish government went in there and it took it over literally it took it over you know I mean this is as if, as if the federal government went into Indiana you know and, and took it over uh, with police force and arrested its officials um, and you know and that just happened you know what uh, a year ago a little less than a year ago and some of them are still they're in jail or they're they're uh, they they fled to to other countries uh, when it came to the referendum that Scotland had uh, I guess it was. 2015 uh, was it uh, that that Scotland had a referendum as to whether to uncouple uh, from uh, from Great Britain from the United Kingdom, uh, and they were given sort of permission to do that by the ruling government uh, in, uh, in in Great Britain. Um, but one of the issues was whether if they did approve that, they could then go into the European Union, which they wanted to do. And the European Union said, don't even think about it. We will not entertain that because the European Union was worried that if they did that, then Catalan, uh, Catalonia in, in Spain would immediately uh, declare its independence and ask for an application to Europe. And Europe would, would begin to, you know, to break down into these smaller nations, which I think would have been a marvelous idea. But it essentially said to, uh, to Scotland, you cannot exceed to the European Union if you uncouple from the United Kingdom. The irony, of course, is that two years later, the people of the, of the United Kingdom uncoupled from Europe. So now Scotland has to wonder about, you know, so it kind of stayed, it, it actually voted to stay by a very narrow margin uh, with the United Kingdom. And by staying with them, it means it's not in the European Union. So there may very well be a second referendum in Scotland, but this time around, uh, the government in England is, uh, and I say England advisedly, is saying that it actually does not have the, it, it won't allow another referendum. Well, I think that is going to be interesting to watch because I, my sense is, is that uh, people in Scotland are, are really fed up with with a lot of this discussion. Um, but I want to, I, I do want to bring this back to the United States in a minute. But before that, I want to ask, there's a sense, you know, so if you let if you let them secede and start their own nation, then these other people will. And if you let them do it, then these other people are going to want to do it. And, and your reaction seems to be great. No problem. Let's have 10,000, you know, members of the of the UN, maybe. Am I am I reading that right? Well, you're you're I wouldn't say 10,000, 10, but you're reading right that that I, I think small nations are are better than uh, than big nations for you know a whole bunch of reasons you know back in uh, there's a man named Leopold Kor K O H R and I strongly recommend anybody interested in this whole topic uh, read him and his classic book is called The Breakdown of Nations it was published in 1957 but but he was alive and fighting against the idea of a European Union if it meant a union of large countries. Uh, and his feeling was that nation states uh, did not come about because they were more efficient, but because of superior force. In other words, nations were made up of tribes and ethnic groups, some of them quite large, uh, and they did not acquiesce to becoming part of this nation state. Armies went in and forced them to acquiesce. And Leopold Kor said that if we're going to, in fact, have a confederation uh, in Europe, it should be a confederation not of existing nation states, 
but of the but of the states that the nations took over over the previous you know couple of hundred years. So yes, I do I do believe that there should be that breakdown. However, having said that, is you know you can break down and break down and break down, and no matter how you break down, you're going to end up with some community where there's a minority, uh, and and you know and the question is how to how to protect. Uh, you know that minority. I think in the issue of of uh, Kurdistan or what people would like to be Kurdistan, there is no question that there should be a Kurdistan. The geopolitics of it are immensely challenging, but there is no question. When Pakistan uncoupled uh, from India, there was a whole question about what does one do with the Muslims in India, uh, who would then be a minority. And there's a incredible book really you know about that and you know about the situation in 1947 and 1948 so i, I don't want to be pollyannish about this um, but i do think that you know that the larger the nation uh, the further away the government is from its people the more bureaucratic it is and the more it tends to be controlled by by corporations i i mentioned how the number of nations has soared uh, since 1945 uh, but at the same time the concentration of corporate power has also increased uh, dramatically. I mean, if you were, if you think of corporations in terms of their sales uh, as equivalent to the gross domestic product of nations, uh, more than fifty percent of the top uh, one hundred corporations uh, are larger than the average uh, nation in the uh, in the world. So you know they have you know enormous power, and that's that's another important point. I mean, we're talking about as if. If you have autonomy, you can exercise it. Yes. And it turns out that even nations are having trouble in exercising autonomy because of the concentration of economic power and the rules that that economic power have managed to get nations uh, to, to introduce and accept that concretize and solidify their power. David, now would actually be a great time for us to just take a very quick break and drink a lot more coffee, do a quick ad break, and come back with even more energy. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Building Local Power. Now is the part of the podcast where you usually hear something about a mattress company issuing loans for audiobooks or something like that, but that's not really how we do it here. Um, instead, we're just going to ask you for money. Please consider making a donation to ILSR. American currency works best. Ties into our conversation a little bit here. Yes. <laughs> Support us in your local currency, though, if that's what you have to do. Not only does your support underwrite this podcast, but it also helps us produce all the resources and research we make available for free on our website. We'd appreciate it if you take a minute and go to ilsr.org donate. Any amount is welcome and sincerely appreciated. That's ilsr.org donate. And now back to the scintillating interview. But just there's so many directions I want to I want to go with this. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna discipline myself a little bit here and and say that um, I think though know, from my perspective, our work at the Institute for Local Self Reliance is is less about whether we have more nations being formed and more about general strategies for making sure that we can solve our problems locally. Um, and so rather than you know starting to think about what would happen if Texas decided to to break off or things like that which uh, I think would be an interesting conversation we have the structures and if we take them for what they are today um let's just let's let's think a little bit more about this issue of of people's reaction to 
um, the uh, frustration with centralized control. Okay, I think that that's an excellent idea, and I, and I do think that in uh, that is true. I mean, that is what we're talking about. We're talking about how people can exercise autonomy uh, at the level that's closest to the people affected by it by that autonomy. Uh, and in the United States, we do have a federalist system, at least titularly. And in fact, there is a great deal of authority that resides in states. And in a number of states, there's authority that, that, uh, that resides uh, in cities. Uh, and I, I, don't, I think that it would be bizarre to think of, uh, of uh, you know, northern Indiana uncoupling from southern Indiana, even though their cultures are, are dramatically different. Uh, so, you know, you talk about Texas and one can talk about California. Um, but, you know, essentially, I'd say for, you know, 75 percent, maybe 85 percent of the states in the United States, there's not a secessionist movement internal to those to those states. There's a movement uh, for those states or cities or counties within those states to be able to have more autonomy, to be able to write rules that 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 affect their lives. Lives. I was just going to make a joke about wait till November. We'll see a lot more secessionary movements, regardless of who wins. <laughs> um, the one of the things that I read. Um, there's a wonderful book uh, that I've read half of. <laughs> Classic problem of me not finishing the reading I intend to do before a podcast. It's called The Third Pillar, and there's a quote in there: "Well-structured countries decentralize a lot of decisions to local community government." And I think that's true. I want that to be true, certainly. But I also feel like that was much more true in the past. And I feel like we've seen a 100-year march away from that and toward giving more power to D.C. or to Brussels. Is that is that right? I think that that's true. I'm not sure that I would say 100 years, but certainly 75 years. I mean, war tends to do that in countries. Uh, and, uh, you know, World War II, World War I was a defining point, except that World War I, you know, you ended up sort of rewriting countries uh, for the next, next 20 years. So think of it as World War II. So there's a centralizing, you know, impact when the federal government has to. I mean, it, it is, in fact, the representative of the nation uh, and uh, especially the armed forces. And so in the case of war, it centralizes. And when the war is over, uh, you don't find that it decentralizes a great deal, you know, after that. But certainly it, it's, it's true about that dynamic. Um, having said that, is that you know by the late 19th century in the United States, uh, it was an accepted principle, uh, judicial principle, that states uh, had uh, complete authority over cities and counties. Uh, they could eliminate them if they wanted to, or they could uh, they could they could make any rules that they wanted uh, in terms of the cities or counties within those borders. So in that sense you actually are having more authority that has been exercised and in some cases given, uh, delegated to uh, cities and, and counties in the last 75 years uh, or 100 years than had existed before. And it got to the point where cities were exercising that authority uh, to such an extent that in the last 10 years, especially since Republicans have taken over state legislatures in many states, uh, they have passed law after law limiting the ability uh, of cities and counties uh, to regulate in, in increasing numbers of, of areas. For example, you know, rural counties uh, don't like concentrated feedlots. Uh, they, they overwhelm their natural systems. 
they smell, they create uh, uh, sickness and disease uh, and headaches, uh, you know, within, uh, you know, a mile or two uh, of where they are, uh, and they try to regulate them. Uh, and the uh, in many states, I don't know how many it is now, maybe 15 states, maybe 20 states, uh, have preempted the authority of a county to regulate a feedlot that is the largest source of odors and contamination and pollution uh, within that county. And that was not true 25 years ago. So you've had this dynamic that really has at least given more authority one way or the other uh, to localities in the United States. And when those authorities, when that authority has been exercised, case of minimum wage, you know, for example, uh, then states have, ta- have begun to take that away. And that is a key issue or should be a key issue uh, in, uh, in, in politics at the, at the state level, certainly. David, as you were saying that, I thought it was worth noting to people, we've been working with a group called the Local Solutions Support Center. Um, They worked with a progressive organization called the State Innovative Exchange to do a report called The Growing Shadow of State Interference, and it documents the numbers of the rise in this preemption of of state interference that's, that's denying localities the right to do things. So for people who would like to learn more about what what direction that takes that's uh, it's a good resource to go to but i wanted to i wanted to ask you david you know one of the things that that we often say is that we'd like to see more local control because um, we think it's more accountable. People have a better ability to impact things at that level. And yet I, I regularly hear from people who say that they think there's more corruption at the local level and that they are less trusting of devolving decisions down. Um, now, I think a lot of that has to do with the the lack of scrutiny we, we have, unfortunately. And you've had a great history talking about responsibility, not just authority, but that, you know, <laughs> that there's there's, there's sort of two sides to this coin, but how do you react to this idea that there's more corruption at the local level and that at least at the national level, there's so many more eyes looking at it that we can, we can have less corruption there? Well, I, I, I don't think there's, there's more corruption at the, at the local level. There's different kinds of corruption at the local level. Uh, you know, at the, at, at the federal level, there's a whole bunch of things that I would call corruption that are not legally called corruption. Uh, you know, and, and you know somebody somebody essentially getting a job in in a corporation that that agency regulated, I call corruption. Uh, and you know, so but there's no there's no law against that. Uh, they might pass a rule that says you have to wait six months or a year or whatever it turns out to be. But I call that corruption. It's a different kind of corruption than on the local level, where some land developer you know gives a ten thousand dollar bribe to somebody to change the zoning uh, on a piece of land. Um, but I don't. I would not say that it's that corruption is more rampant at the local level. And what I would say uh, is that at the local level, you get to kick the bums out. Uh, now, one can argue that, well, it's not easy to kick the bums out, but actually it's very easy to kick the bums out. You know, late 19th century, maybe not because people with brass knuckles would visit you. And, you know, and there was a and there was a whole different government. Uh, there was a, a, a machines, you know, the boss machines and the like, but that, that's not true, you know, any any longer. What you're saying is is that it's easy in the sense that you do have to get off of your couch. You have to put down Twitter. You have to knock on your neighbor's doors. But it is physically possible for a very small group of people to knock on enough doors and have enough conversations to kick the bums out. 
Yes, absolutely, absolutely. You know, and so what? What? What one needs is for higher levels of government. I mean, there's two things that I would have higher levels of government do uh, that do interfere and intervene uh, in in communities. Uh, one is a requirement for transparency. You know, so if there's corruption, you would know there's corruption. Now, you're never going to get to the level of complete transparency when someone gives you a bag of cash. You know, but on the other hand, there's 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 lots of ways in which you can know what's going on. Um, so that should be a, a rule uh, that is implemented and enforced by higher levels of government. The second thing that should be done by higher levels of government is that they should uh, they should enforce the Constitution uh, especially the the bill of the bill of rights, uh, they should enforce that because otherwise you have majorities that will tyrannize minorities. Uh, and so, you know, I do I do think uh, that if there's a human rights issue, a civil rights issue that's going on, that you do have the right and and you have the responsibility as a higher level of government um, to uh, you know to intervene. But if people at the local level are doing things that you don't like, I mean, let's take, for example, the issue of, of uh, cities that require public employees, that is city employees, to live within the city. Now, you know, there's, there, there have been waves of this. There was a time 30 years ago where many cities did this. Now there are relatively few that do it. But that debate should take care at the, at the local level. Uh, and in most cases, states are preempting it, and they're preempting it for reasons that they don't like it, uh, or the people who are forced to live within a city don't like it. I get that. I mean, I understand that, and there's arguments on both ways, both the both the levels. Uh, but what I would say is, it's a decision that should be made at the local level, and if it's a decision that people don't like. Uh, then at the next election, and there's also recalls in many places, uh, they make their their disapproval felt. And usually, when these decisions are made, they're almost always they're made in public. Uh, there are public hearings. Yeah, you might not feel that you're being listened to, but I assure you that if you go to a city council or, for that matter, a zoning commission uh, decision-making process, and there's 300 people that show up uh, at that meeting, uh, you do get heard and you do have a great deal, you know, of influence. But you got to get up, and if it's raining, you got to take your umbrella and you got to go a few blocks or maybe even a half a mile. It seems to me that a lot of this comes down to now. Now, here's where you're going to hear the the part of me, David, that I I know that you love, which is the part that's heavily influenced by uh, Robert Heinlein, uh, Edward Abbey, the sort of <laughs> libertarian mindset that um, that so confuses um, um, me with all the other <laughs> tendencies that I have. I feel like I'm legion of political philosophies, um, but the there's a lot of this comes down to me saying I want to tell those people over there how they should organize their lives and and we see this on the right because the right is in tremendous power right now i i feel like we would also see it on the left i think many of us would find it less problematic but i still think that we we see a tendency of people saying i want to tell the people who live in that city that city that i have no no intent to live in i want to tell them how they have to organize their lives and and to me that seems like the root of a lot of this problem is that we need to get to a point in which we say I want to have power to organize my community. And to do that, I have to let other communities make decisions that are different from mine as long as I think the rules you set out are great. Um, transparency, no no minorities or majorities terrorizing the other. 
Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that that's you know absolutely true. There is, you know, you you were talking about it with Abby and the like, and you know, it, with, with the environment, it gets to be it's a trickier issue. Environment. I mean, let's say that you live downstream uh, from <laughs> another city. Uh, should right. you have any control over what that city dumps into the into the water supply? And I would argue that you know, yes, you should. Uh, but I wouldn't. Uh, but I would say that there needs to be some regional authority that you have some direct participation in that tries to establish the rules, you know, related to that. And I would also say that that you know, I believe very much in performance standards rather than. Uh, prescriptive standards, and for those who don't know what that means, and I would imagine 99 out of 100 of you don't know what that means. Uh, if you're talking about a building code, a prescriptive standard says you have to have three inches of insulation in the walls, six inches of insulation uh, in the in the ceiling, or you have to have a certain insulation value in your walls and your ceilings. A performance standard says you have to have under a certain amount of heat loss from that building depending on what the what the uh, temperature is outside and the second thing is one that then allows a great deal of creativity and innovation by architects and by builders the first one creates bureaucracy and monitoring and paperwork uh, and stifles innovation so you know you need to have a, a different you know type of standard and then the second is that standards should be in most cases minimums and not maximums and that tends to be what has occurred in the environmental community, environmental uh, legislation for the most part, uh, which is essentially that the federal government uh, says that you have to have an air quality that is, that is X clean, um, but it can be cleaner. Uh, or the state decides that that the, you know you need to be 50% renewables, or you have to reduce your carbon, or whatever, um, by X amount. But you can go further uh, than that, you know, if you want to. Uh, and so, you know, minimums, uh, you know, floors and not ceilings, uh, and performance standard rather than prescriptive standards uh, is one that I would, uh, you know, that I would recommend. I, I would say that that's the environment. Now you have the issue of uh, of um, of culture uh, and personal behavior, and especially sexual behavior, uh, and that's one that tends to be the sticking point in the community, because the people that you want to regulate in terms of sexual behavior almost always are a minority in the community, and if it's a community with strong religious principles uh, that they think you know relates to this, this sexual behavior, they will ban that behavior. Sometimes they will jail people. Uh, who participate uh, in that behavior. Uh, and that's the situation where I think higher levels of government should step in to protect the minority. But the question of whether that minority has any rights is often up to the courts. And so, for example, you know, the Supreme Court has declared that under the freedom of privacy, you know, women have the right uh, to make a decision, you know, about about um, well, about two things actually. The the right to privacy, by the way, came about because of your right to ha- have access to contraception. It wasn't about your right to have access to abortion. Uh, and then it was extended, you know, beyond that, you know. But there are Supreme Court justices, and there may be a majority right now uh, in the Supreme Court that don't believe in a right to privacy. Uh, and so then you would not be protected by their interpretation of the Bill of Rights. And then the question is. Who, if anyone, protects you? Right, and I think it would have been a lot easier, David, to end without unveiling a really hard can of worms. <laughs> but one of the things that I've 
appreciated um, in working with you all these years. And one of the reasons I've I've been here is that I feel like we're not going to shy away from those. Um, we're going to um, try to deal with those as honestly as we can and not hide that fact. But let me let me ask you, David. Um, you know, when we see these various movements, is there is there a kernel? Um, that is driving them that's maybe different than it was before in terms of this desire for more local control? Uh, or am I just seeing that because I want to see that and I'm, and I'm, because I'm so focused on it? Is something different now? Mm, well, I, I, don't, I don't think that any of it has to do with local control. I mean, except as a you know, sort of a cover you know, for what you want to do. Uh, so you know, I, don't, I don't see that. I don't think that you know, Donald Trump is certainly not asking for local control. The word local, I'm not even sure he knows what that means. Uh, and, and uh, you know, when Poland and Bulgaria, you know, talk about uh, more control over their own affairs, they're talking about vis-a-vis the European Union. And, and, you know, I mean, people may or may not know what's going on in Poland and Hungary, but, you know, Poland essentially abolished an independent judiciary uh, a couple of years ago, uh, effectively. And uh, and the European Union had to figure out what do you do about this, you know, when one of your members essentially, mm-hmm. uh, um, you know, violates a cardinal principle of the European Union, and they're still trying to figure out uh, what to do, you know, about that. And the polls would say, you know, this is, you know, we we should have the right to to decide how we want to structure our government. Um, I would disagree with that, um, but at the same time, you know, that's not a call for, you know, for you know for localism, you know, at all. Um, so I don't, I don't, you know, I don't think so. I, I think that that uh, that what's what drives most of these populist movements, I wouldn't say all of them, but most of them, uh, when when you're calling about them populist movements, for example, I would not call Scotland's a populist movement. I would not call Catalan a populist movement. I'm talking about the modern, you know, definition of the word populist. They're they're almost all about race, uh, or religion, or uh, ethnic fears. Or some relation of immigration. Immigration is the key issue for this. It's, the, it's a key issue for Donald Trump, wants to close the borders and effectively is closing the borders. Uh, it was the key issue uh, in Brexit. Uh, in fact, if you, if you look at the you know, vote leave campaign, a fundamental principle of the vote leave campaign uh, was that uh, essentially uh, the, the, uh, that Turkey – uh, was going to become part of the European Union, and quickly Albania, Macedonia, Serbia uh, were going to join the European Union, and then they would have the right to go to England uh, because you have the free flow of population. Uh, in India, uh, it's religious and it's ethnic; it's Muslims and you know, and Hindus. Um, but you know, that's what it seems to me is driving. You know, populism, you know, these days it can be justified by many things, but that tends to be the fundamental principle. And that's ex- that's completely different from the definition of populism and what populism was as movements in the late 19th century. This has been uh, a fun conversation. And, and I like to think of this as um, I think some people um, in, in setting out to record an episode of a podcast think, all right, let's go from A to B and let's let's be orderly. And I think let's have a nice stroll and we'll meander and see where we go. Like we're going on a, on a nice hike uh, without a well-defined path. And, <laughs> and, and along the way you have wonderful sights and that's what I hope this accomplished. Well, it, it did. It was helpful to me. And uh, I thank you very much. I, I enjoyed meandering with you, Chris. I thank you to everyone for tuning in to this episode of the Building Local Power podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. You can find all the links to what Chris and David discussed today at our website, that's ilsr.org. 
on clicking on the show page for this episode. While you're there, you can sign up for one of our many newsletters and connect with us on social media. Finally, you can help us out with a gift that helps produce this very podcast and produce original research on the way monopolies are impacting our economy. Uh, Once again, please help us out by rating this podcast and sharing it with your friends on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. This show is produced by Lisa Gonzalez, uh, Zach Fried, and me, Jess Delfiaco. Our theme music is Funk Interlude by Dysfunctional. For the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, I'm Jess Delfiaco, and I hope you join us again in two weeks for the next episode of Building Local Power. (laughs) 